I mean, I sometimes think that, um, you know, the time has come, you know, for renewed sustained inquiry uh, into what we mean, you know, by evil. You know, you know, lesser evil arguments are increasingly popular, you know, in the ethics of war. But I don't think we have a good grip, you know, of what it is that we mean. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. My guest today is Cecile Farb. Professor Farb is a moral and political philosopher working at Oxford University. And as you probably will be aware, she was actually the guest of our first ever episode. You'll notice one difference with this episode is we don't begin by introducing the guest and asking them to say what they do. The reason for that is we actually recorded two episodes back-to-back. Professor Farb was very generous with her time. We actually talked for over two hours. And the result was two episodes, one on sex work, organ sales, and intuition, and today's episode, which you're about to hear, which covers the ethics, and indeed the meta-ethics in some cases, of the death penalty of torture, and of conduct during war. One thing that occurred to me in listening to this audio again is if you take some of what we're saying out of context, it might sound like we're arguing for the death penalty, or that we're arguing for torture. We're not. Both Professor Farb and I are against the death penalty and think torture should be illegal, in all cases. That's what we mean when we say the legal is easier than the moral. What we do, though, is we take those convictions and really push them down a flight of stairs and come up with the strongest arguments from the other side and really play with our moral intuitions here. As a final note, we talk at the end about conscription. Again, I don't want to speak for Professor Farb here, but what I was saying when I said I'm unsure about conscription is I am not in any way in favour of conscription in today's America. I'm more asking, are there ever circumstances where it could be justified? If, for instance, the only way that Britain could have defeated Germany in the Second World War was by using conscription. That may or may not be the case historically, but just say it is. Would then conscription be justified? And my answer is sort of a, I don't know. And it would depend on the circumstances, and it's messy and complicated. And I think that should do as an introduction. If you are liking the show, please follow us on Facebook or Twitter, You can find the links to all of that on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, all one word. And really the best way to support the show, which is still a fairly new project, is to share it on your own social media if there's an episode you particularly like. Please help us out by growing our audience and share that on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is you use. So... Without further preamble, it is my pleasure to bring you, for the second time, Professor Cecile Farb. 
So we've, we've gone around the block on intuitions. It feels like we're on a similar page with maybe me being a little bit more epistemically confident than you. Yes. Is that, is yes. that, is that a yeah, fair prelude? Yeah. So one thing, because I know you've written a lot on state control over um, bodies and on yeah. war, is I feel like our intuitions on when the state can use violence and specifically when it can take life are yeah. all over the map. They're yeah. both all over the map in that different ideological traditions have very yes. different answers, but they're also all over the map in terms of even within an ideological tradition, they seem to me incongruous. So like most leftists, I sort of have the intuition that capital punishment, it's not just that it's ineffective or badly applied, there's something really off and, and when you talk about capital punishment, liberals will say the state absolutely should not be able to take the life of its citizens. Right. But then if right. you go to, say, police action, if you have a sniper on the roof, even yeah. liberals who are very cautious of the use of police violence will say, OK, no, you've got to take that guy out. Right. And then when it comes to war, all bets are off. Even yes. liberals will be like, well, you know, if your country gets invaded, then suddenly just everything gets put on the yeah. table. And that seems, so like even within one tradition, there's no congruence at all as far as I can see. We're not going to be able to map out like a full theory of this, but how would you begin to start thinking about that? Yeah, so, so that's, that's a huge, huge, huge question. So the liberals, you know, you are, you know, describing, you know, of, you know, whom I am, um, you know, might want to uh, think about or start drawing distinctions you know, between um, you know taking a life um, as a way to eliminate, you know, um, an ongoing threat, you know, onto another life. So that's what's happening with the sniper, you know, case, right. um, uh, or you know, with a police chase case, or, or indeed even with a war case. So you know, draw a distinction between those you know cases. So when you know, the taking of a life is eliminative, you know, as it were, you know, from cases where, you know, the taking of a life is uh, punitive. So, you know, ex post, you know, we kill blogs, you know, by electrocution um, as punishment, you know, for the murder, you know, which, uh, which he committed. So that's the first thing that I would enjoy, you know, those liberals to do, you know, to try and sort out whether, you know, one rationale, you know, for uh, the the different intuitions that they have might have to do with that deeper, you know, distinction, you know, between eliminating on the one hand and punishing, you know, on the other hand. It's not that clear cut because, of course, you know, if you believe in deterrence... I was just going to say, yes. And, of course, by killing, you know, by executing the criminal, you know, you are, in effect, seeking to eliminate or to block, you know, the commission of further murders, you know, down the line uh, by deterring, you know, putative... Could, you know, we just, could we just dig in there for yeah, a minute? Because sure. even before we get to war, it seems like our moral intuitions on the case of... Like, capital punishment is almost like a uniquely confused debate, I think. So yeah. let's just take off the punitive stuff, because right. I think that actually is, is, is a prime example of what I'm talking about when it, we talk about moral right. illusions, right? In the, I've just said on the positive side, you know, we reward people for doing good things actually doesn't make a lot of sense because we didn't choose most right. of what we call good yeah. things. But that yeah. goes for the negative as well, yes, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, so punishment 
is a very strong intuition, but I think doesn't cash out. I think can be overridden by more fundamental like, intuitions. Okay. So let's take all of that off the table. Let's mm -hmm. also take efficacy off the table. So people right. will say, oh, but the capital punishment actually costs more than just locking someone up for yeah, life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like no one's actually convinced by that argument. If it turned out it was cheaper, would you change your mind? I don't think they well, would. So I think it's a very good question as to whether or not it's even the right kind of argument you know, to put forward you know, I, against I, capital punishment. And, I mean, it goes back to money, actually. That, yeah. I think that's a very good... I mean, it's a, so, so, so it's a good example of you know, that more general view that you know, there are areas where you know, arguments about money or considerations of money should not come into play. Um, and so some people take the view, and I'm sympathetic, that, you know, we can't, it's it's problematic to argue against capital punishment, you know, on grounds of money. That shouldn't come into it. Um, yeah, I also just feel like it, it, it's an additional thing. No one's right. actually convinced yeah. by it, right? right? And if the data was the other way round, people wouldn't change their minds. There's also, let's just take off the table the question of getting the wrong outcome, because I think... Sure. It's yeah, yeah. terrifying, the idea of executing an innocent person. But the idea of imprisoning an innocent person for life is, I'm not sure, less terrifying. Well, I agree, I'm, I agree with you, yeah. At the heart of it, I think there's the idea that the state should not be killing its own citizens. But then the idea of deterrence really plays amok with that. Now, the empirical evidence, as I'm aware of it, I'm not an expert, is that it's really mixed. You can find people who say there is a deterrence effect to capital punishment. You can find people who say there isn't. The data's very messy. There's only a few advanced countries that still do it. Yeah. But let's just, yeah. let's just say the sniper on the roof, if you kill him, you, are, you have a reasonable expectation of saving three more lives. In that case, it becomes not only ethically permissible, but I would argue ethically necessary to kill the sniper. If, and I don't, think the, I don't think this is true, but let's just say that it were, by executing someone, there is such a strong deterrence effect that you yeah. save three more murders. In that counterfactual, would mm -hmm. it then become ethically necessary to execute people? Yeah, well, so, so, so that's interesting. So we need, in the deterrence um, you know, case, we need to distinguish two variants. Um, I mean, the first variance is um, a special you know, deterrence. So is it the case that the only way to prevent him, he has killed once already, let's say, is it the case that the only way to prevent him from killing three more people is to kill him? That special deterrence. So, so we punish the wrongdoer as a means to deter him, you know, from, or to preventing him from committing further, you know, wrongdoing. So, in this particular case, it seems to me that if you are committed to the permissibility of defensive killing in the sniper case, you have to commit yourself to the permissibility of capital punishment in the special, you know, deterrence in your case. The second deterrence variant is general deterrence. So here, the thought is not that by killing him, by electrocuting him, we will prevent him or deter him you know, uh, from killing three people. We will deter other putative wrongdoers you know, from committing you know, murder. And I think it's much harder to justify you know, capital punishment in the latter in a general deterrence case, because in the general deterrence case, he, whom we are about to execute, is not going to pose the threat that we are trying to eliminate in the future, it's other people, putative murderers, 
you know, him we are trying to deter by showing to them that women business, that if they kill, we are going to kill them. But, know, but where's, where's the ethical traction of that distinction? I mean, I see the distinction, but so if we're just... Traction, yeah. So, so the ethical, so, so, so one argument which has been put forward uh, uh, to show that um, there is something deeply problematic about the deterrence, you know, argument in the second case is that by killing, you know, the murderer uh, as a means to deter other, you know, murderers, we would be using him as a means and as a means only, you know, to the end of, you know, preventing you know, those future murders. And for people who um, are sympathetic to the Kantian prohibition on using people as means only, um, then, you know, general deterrence so construed is really, really problematic. Now, in the end, you know, you're going to have to uh, come up with that rock bottom intuition that, you know, there is something wrong, you know, to using people as a means only to the furtherance of a particular end, even you know, people who have committed a crime, you know, as um, significant, you know, as murder. Not everyone takes that view. So my friend and colleague, Victor Tadros, um, whom you should try to interview if you haven't planned to do that already. Recommendation as noted. sophisticated arguments um, in favor of deterrence, where he tries to show that even general deterrence does not violate, you know, the Kantian prohibition. I don't think he succeeds. Um, so that, you know, that's where my reservation you know, is. I mean, you know, that murderer might say, well, look, you know, I'm not, we, we agree, ex hypothesize, that I'm not going to murder again. On what grounds can you kill me as a means to prevent those three putative murderers? The only, the only tool you can get into that particular crack is a deontological principle of means and ends. If you're trying to just map up from a morally yeah. consequentialist suffering matter, that's different. So you're right. That consequentialists, you know, won't have the problem, you know, that I'm describing. What I find interesting to um, this particular way of, um, you know, thinking about general deterrence, um, you know, where we incorporate the Kantian prohibition, um, is that um, uh, well, you know, some people are pure consequentialists, you know, they don't worry at all, you know, about the way in which, you know, certain uh, results, you know, are brought about. But a lot of people are not extreme consequentialists, you know, of that kind. And I think to those people who believe that there is a role, you know, for deontic constraints, you know, in morality, that is what's going to be problematic, you know, about capital punishment in the general you know, deterrence in a case, you know, they will say, well, look, you know, it's one thing to kill someone as a means to prevent him from killing another person, you know, be it the sniper or the murderer who will re-offend if we don't kill him. You know, it's another to kill someone who exercises is no longer and will no longer ever be a threat. So I'm going to make a move. Like my intuition is against the death penalty. I don't really know why I'm yes, digging so in not, here. So um, not, but like yeah. I'm, I'm increasingly unconvinced that I can actually cash that intuition out. So let yeah. me make a move that consequentialists tend, or, or those of us who are sort of inclined to this way of thinking, tend to make in these situations is to just scale up the consequences. Let's say it's, well, the deterrence effect isn't three, it's 30. Let's say it's 300. Okay. Let's right, say we could yeah, half yeah. the national murder rate just by killing this one guy. At what point does that principle start well, to break down? 
so I mean, I think it's a very, very powerful challenge. So it's a very powerful challenge to um, to Kantians like me, who are not absolutely Kantians. You know, who think that there is, you know, a place. Of course, there has to be a place for consequences. And the the, the move that we, you know, tend to make is very feeble. You know, at this point, unfortunately, is to say, well, you know, there are cases where. You know, you might be justified in deliberately harming, even severely harming another person as a means you know, to bring about some good. And these are lesser evil, you know, arguments. But note, you know, the use of the word evil. So, you know, in order, you know, to justify, you know, committing the evil of deliberately killing someone who is no longer a threat, you know, as a means to bring about a good, then you have to be able to show that what you are preventing is A, an evil, B, a greater evil. So not just any good, you know, will do. You could, you could map this on, because I think that the, the, the example I just gave is a pure hypothetical. It is obviously, it's hard to imagine how a deterrence effect that strong would even operate, right? Well, yeah. If yeah. it does, it's operating at the margins. It's not like you'd save right. hundreds of lives. Yeah. But if you take the case of torture, you can quite easily imagine a real-world yeah, okay. scenario in which... So and this is where I think consequentialism can kind of earn its stripes, is I think you can have a general prohibition against torture, which is that even if there are local instances where it would maximise yeah. well-being, overall societies that torture people are worse places to live. It's right. a bit like, would you hang an innocent man to prevent a riot that kills 10 people? Sure. It maximizes it in the local instance, but in the general, you want a functioning justice system. But what's, yeah. what's open to a consequentialist is if you say, okay, would you torture someone to save a life? No, because of the general argument. Two lives, no. To stop a nuclear bomb going off over Manhattan. Uh, yes, th th no. There's a scenario that could occur yeah. then. And then the consequentialist can just say, well, sure. Sure, this is a scenario that's outside of right. the general logic of that rule that I was putting forward. It seems to me the deontologist gets a bit stuck there. Well, um, yes, she does. Um, I mean, I think, so So there are several, you know, things going on. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the first point to make is that, you know, we need, it seems to me, and again, now in a nice, you know, circle, we go back to uh, the very first theme of our discussion, that we need to distinguish, it seems to me, the question of, you know, whether a particular course of action is morally right, um, you know, from the question of whether that course of action ought to be um, legally, you know, authorized or legally uh, disallowed or, you know, you know criminalized. So, you know, someone might say, well, yes, I can accept that in the ticking bomb, you know, scenario, uh, you know, torture is, you know, morally permissible, but we don't live, you know, in a ticking bomb. You know, right. scenario, um, and you know, we we you know those hard cases. You know, the argument will continue to make bad laws. Um, so that's the first you know point to make. Uh, we need to distinguish you know those two kinds of inquiry. Now, that doesn't leave the deontologist of the hook when it comes to the moral, you know, inquiry. You know, precisely. Right. The legal's the legal's easier than the moral. Here, right? much, the legal is much easier than the moral. You know, absolutely. And you know, as a moral and political philosopher of a fairly 
strong in a Kantian band, it would be dishonest of me, you know, to um, you know to say that even you know in the case where we would save two million lives, you know, by torturing an innocent person, you know, we ought not to torture. Um, I mean, I think that may well be a case where we may, you know, torture. Um, now there, there are you know further things to you know think about as to whether or not we commit a wrongdoing, you know, by torturing, such that there is a more remainder that we owe, you know, something, you know, very important to that person, you know, whom that innocent person, you know, whom we are torturing. There are other questions to do with well, who is going to do it? You know, can we deploy a conscientious objection, you know, to doing that if we are the person called upon, you know, to torture, to fight, to kill, you know, and so on and so forth. But I would have to say that, you know, that the forestalling of evil um, yeah, may sometimes require you know, the imposition of, you know, those profoundly, you know, grievous, um, you know, grievous harms. Um, I, I mean, I sometimes think that, um, uh, you know, the time has come, you know, for renewed, sustained inquiry uh, into what we mean, you know, by evil. You know, you know, lesser evil arguments are increasingly popular, you know, in the ethics of war. But I don't think we have a good grip, you know, of what it is that we mean. You know, by that. I think just the, this is one of these things where it's not even the concept, it's literally the sound of the word. Like, people yes, are I uncomfortable with evil, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. Um, and so, so I think that um, when, when, I, when I listen to, um, you know, to myself or, you know, to my colleagues in that, you know, world, you know, say, oh, well, that's okay, we have the lesser evil, you know, argument. I, I, I often think, well, Right, but I mean that's a rhetorical. You just made a rhetorical point, but you know what do you mean, you know, by evil? You know, at which point, you know, can we say, well, no, what we, you know, what we would be, you know, um, preventing, a is evil, two is a much greater evil than the harm that we would be doing. So let's summarize. We did get some moral traction between, say, execution or torture on the one hand, and you know, taking down uh, yeah. police action on the other, yeah. although that traction only works to the extent that you buy deontological principles. Yeah, yes. I think that's an interesting conclusion in and of itself. Yeah, um, good. Yeah. So let's yeah. map it up. Are there any wedges we could draw between police action and war? Because I think people feel very intuitively differently yeah. about these. Yeah. So, so what, you know, in war you would kill an enemy soldier who was not, per se, an immediate threat to you. You would take life in ways that fall That's outside right. of the justification yeah. you gave That's for killing the right. sniper. So what, 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 what yeah. point do we map up? So, so that's one important difference, um, you know, between, uh, that it's one important difference that people have identified, you know, between um, uh, the use of force in police cases on the one hand and the use of force in war cases on the other hand. And, you know, one way in which, you know, they draw the distinction is that uh, in war, you know, because of the nature of warfare, you have to accept that uh, in order to protect yourself, you know, your fellow citizens, your fellow soldiers, you have to commit many more preventive killings, you know, than would be the case in domestic you know, settings. You know, if you don't have a, a, an overall of an arching neutral enforcer of norms, you know, internationally, such as the police, well then, you know, soldiers' units are left, you know, to fend for themselves to a much greater degree. Um, there are fewer opportunities to escape, 
you know, for example, you know, than they are, you know, in domestic, you know, in domestic settings. Um, so let me give you an example. You know, the the, naked, the case of the naked soldier comes back all the time. So you, you're on patrol uh, at war and you come across a, a naked enemy soldier. He's taking your baths um, uh, or, he, or he's asleep. Um, and so you have to decide whether to kill that soldier or not. I mean, if you don't, you know, because we are at war, then it's very likely um, that that soldier will either kill you, you know, the next morning or kill one of your fellow, you know, soldiers a week from then, you know, and so on. But if I encounter, you know, someone in, you know, uh, a domestic setting, if I encounter someone who is asleep um, and of whom I know that he might pose a threat to me, I'm much more likely, you know, to be able to find refuge, you know, somewhere else. So to be able to call the police, um, you know, than I would be, you know, in the context of war. So that's one, I mean, I think there are serious problems, you know, with that, um, with that disanalogy, you know, between the, two com between the two cases. But that is one of the disanalogies that people, you know, have identified. Um, so that almost brings us back to, I might be slightly misunderstanding this, but that almost brings us back to like the capital punishment case, in that in war we're looking at it from a much more broadly, in the police case it's only specifically, is that this case, we have we have we have an immediate threat you know here and now, and we tend to say in the police case that you know we should kill only when we are faced with an imminent or ongoing you know threat. Now we also tend to think along those lines in the war case, except that we in the war case it seems to me that a lot of people would have a, a more generous, if you will, or more elastic you know conception of what constitutes an ongoing threat. I mean in the war case, you know the 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 soldier who is asleep. You know, insofar as he participates, you know, in a war, poses an ongoing threat, even though he himself, you know, is not yielding the gun. You know, he's asleep. Was you know, in in the domestic police case, you know, if we chance upon a serial killer who is asleep, you know, we want to say to the police, well, you don't kill him, you try to capture him. That's what you have to do. Right. right. So a thought occurs, which is, um, so. Would you, by that logic, follow Thomas Hobbes down the line of saying your argument assumes that there is sort of a structure and a justice system and a set of norms yeah. and laws governing society? So you can, if the murderer by the side of the road is naked and unarmed, or you, uh, you don't kill him because there's someone to come and lock yeah. him up. But if you're in as some people still are today, like a non-functioning state scenario where yeah. there isn't, then are you, are you, do you have, as Hobbes put it, a war of all against all? Yeah, well, so I think that's a very interesting point. Um, so, so it seems to me that, um, you know, those philosophers of war on whom I'm not, of whom I'm not, who think that there is a clear line of demarcation, if you will, you know, between the use of force in, you know, domestic, um, uh, by which they mean police-type context on the one hand, and the use of force in war-type context on the other hand, those philosophers presuppose, without making it explicit, a roughly well-functioning state, you know, where the police will turn up, you know, if you call 999 or 911, you know, because you found, you know, uh, a sleepy, um, a serial, you know, killer uh, down the road. Um, but in many cases, states are failing. Um, and I think it's an important 
uh, fact, you know, to bear in mind, you know, when we think about the norms that ought to regulate the use of force in those cases. So, so my view is that the norms that ought to regulate the use of force in war are coterminous, are the same, you know, as the norms that ought to regulate the use of force in domestic settings. I don't think that war, you know, is a special domain you know, which admits, you know, of its own norms uh, and which are radically different or substantially different, you know, from uh, the norms that ought to regulate the use of force, you know, in uh, in domestic, you know, settings. I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but it would be remiss of me not to, to finish this bit of our discussion by pointing to uh, another disanalogy. We, we, we started a moment ago by thinking, okay, so, you know, what are differences, what are the differences, you know, between you know, uh, killing someone in the context of a police operation and killing someone in the context of war. And one important difference has to do with controls of, you know, imminence, ongoing threats and so on and so forth. But there's another, you know, difference which to some people is even more, you know, important, you know, which is this, that in war contexts, um, once the war has been declared by a political you know, body, which has the authority to declare war, then the soldiers on whose behalf and at whose behest, sorry, the soldiers who are going to fight you know, on behalf and at the behest of that authority are morally permitted, and indeed they are legally permitted to kill enemy soldiers, irrespective of the moral status of the war in which they are fighting. So on this view, once Germany has invaded Poland, you know, in the early days of September 1939, even though, the war waged by Germany against Poland is a unjust and illegal war, the acts of killing committed by German soldiers against Polish you know, soldiers are not wrongful. They are not regarded as acts of murders. Those soldiers have been authorized you know, by the government, the Nazi government, to kill you know, Polish soldiers, even though they kill those Polish soldiers in pursuit of an unjust war of aggression. And likewise, I mean, the Polish, the Polish soldiers are morally entitled and legally permitted to kill the German soldiers. So you've got two groups of people, you know, the German soldiers and the Polish soldiers, who are at liberty to kill one another, irrespective of the moral status you know, of the war you know, which they are fighting, which is an unjust war of aggression on the German side and a just war of self-defense on the Polish you know, side. But in police-type settings, it's completely different. I mean, suppose you have a shootout, you know, between the police on the one hand and the mafia, you know, on the other hand, then the relationship, the killing, if you will, relationship between individual police officers on the one hand and mafia members on the other hand is profoundly asymmetrical. We would not say of the mafiosis, well, they've been authorized by Don Colleone to go and shoot at, you know, police officers, so they are morally permitted, you know, to do that. You know, we would say that these mafiosis are liable to a charge of murder, you know, if they kill, you know, police officers. Um, so I, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, no, I well, have two, 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 two follow-ups occur here. The first, I guess, is quite simple, but it's the, the, the authorization argument in yeah. the use of war clearly um, must have limits, right? In that, well, so so if you say I was only following orders, that phrase is immediately evocative of Nuremberg, where the idea is that 
you know, that there is a limit to what we will let people say, I was authorised by my state to do this. Now, it's, it's incredibly difficult to enforce, and even at its best, it can look like Victor's justice, but that, that, that we don't carry that all the way down the road, yes. right? Yeah, good. Yeah, so 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 the, the 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 people I've just described, the philosophers I've just described, and Michael Wartzer is one of the best contemporary examples who draw this sharp distinction between the 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 criminal case on the one hand and the war case on the other hand. Of course, accept um, that um, there are many cases in which you cannot just say I was just following orders. So the challenge for those philosophers is to explain why a soldier cannot invoke Nuremberg, the Nuremberg defense, to justify you know, his having killed innocent civilians, but can invoke, you know, I was ordered to leave the barracks, you know, to justify killing enemy combatants, even though his war, you know, was unjust. So they're, they're very complicated, sophisticated arguments to do with the fact that, for example, you know, an ordinary rank and file soldier ought to be able, you know, to develop the resources to resist, you know, in order to kill innocent civilians once the war has started, but cannot be expected to reach a personal judgment, you know, about the justice of the cause, you know, before the war, you know, has already, you know, begun. But I think those arguments are very problematic. And again, you know, it seems to me that we should treat um, broadly speaking, we should treat the mafia case, you know, in the same way, or rather we should treat the war case, you know, in um, importantly similar ways as we treat the mafia, you know, case. So then, the, the next question I have is how far of this would this sort of constitute a moral argument for the nation-state understood in a sort of Weber's sense of a mon monopoly on the legitimate means of violence in right. so far as, I mean, I think you know where I'm going with this, but like, if to the extent that to which you can just call the police when you see the unarmed yeah. murderer, as opposed to having to physically take him out... Yeah. That's surely a huge moral improvement, as well as just like we've been talking about consequentialism, just a mm. brute force consequentialist yeah. improvement. I guess another way of putting it is, is, is Thomas Hobbes essentially correct here, if we follow down that line? So I, I have to think more about the Thomas Hobbes point. I mean, so it's one thing to say, um, uh, in the end, you know, the state has, you know, monopoly over the use of violence. Um uh, it's another to try and translate that in the international arena. I mean, you know, we, we don't have a UN army. No, no, no. You know, I'm, I'm more just thinking on the point okay. of view is, is, is the nation state morally justified? Because, like, when you do um, any sort of introduction to political philosophy course, you get this question sure. of, like, political obligation yeah. and people have, yeah. like, transactional accounts and it gets really complicated really fast. But to, but you, you could just sort of look at it the way we're looking at it and say, given that the, the norm observance is going to lead to less, uh, the, the necessity of less killing and probably the reality of less sure. killing, yeah. there's your justification for the state. So that's, yeah, so that, that's the justification for the state. Um, it doesn't need to be, the state doesn't need to be coterminous with the nation. So I, I prefer right. talking about you know, justifying the state you know, rather than, 
or instead of um, you know talking about dressing up in the nation state. Um, but that's that's a good concept. distinction. I said I stand yeah. corrected. Sorry, yeah. go on. So so so, but but you know, um, then you get into complications because. Um, I mean, you know, take a profoundly dictatorial regime. You know, it's plausible on the one hand to say that um, living under that dictatorial regime, you know, is better, you know, all things considered, you know, than living under no state, you know, at all. Um, you know, you might even say that in some respects of a Stalinist, you know, Russia. Um, right. And in other respects, you might also say that for, you know, most ordinary Germans, you know, of living under, you know, the Nazi regime when the alternative is absolutely no state is the state of nature. So it's one thing to make that consistent move. But it's quite another, you know, to uh, say that, or to infer, you know, from that consistent move, that we are under an obligation to obey any order as given, you know, by this particular you know, institution. So, you know, to say on the one hand that um, the, you know, Soviet citizens had some reasons to obey at least some of the directives, you know, as issued by the Stalinist regime is compatible, it seems to me, with a view that they were not under a duty not to overthrow, you know, that regime, you know, if they could replace it, you know, with something, you know, better. So that, that I think, you know, is an indirect way of um, uh, responding to your question about Hobbes. You know, one of the worries about Hobbes is that it seems to be an either or, you know, answer to the question. It's either the state of nature or an absolutist, you know, sovereign. Which is the... Locke's, you know, response is, well, no, it's not an either or. You know, they are, you know, intermediate, right. um, you know. Um, state, you know, institutional arrangements um, which protect us, you know, from the worst, you know, the state of nature without exposing us to the worst of, you know, the absolute sovereign. You which, know, would, our which would bring us to, say, Locke, which is that you can get governmental arrangements so bad that a reversion to a state of nature can be the lesser evil. Yes. In that that's case. Right. That's right, in that case, yeah. I mean, it's complicated with Hobbes because, as you know, um, he also takes the view that you are entitled to, you know, and you are prudentially required to give priority to your own survival so that, you know, if the sovereign knocks on your door, um, you know, with a view to taking you away, you know, to put you to death, even if you, you know, have committed murder, and even if there is a sense in which the sovereign is at liberty, you know, to execute you for that, you yourself are at liberty to resist. In right, so so the the, the Hobbes so, public private divide is not exactly a a, a well enmeshed protection for the individual. No, the the state can hang you, but you can scream all the way to the gallows. That's right. You so, know? so 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 it's it would be misleading, you know, to say that um, the sovereign is absolute um, uh, in uh, Hobbes's account, in the sense that we are under a duty to obey whatever order, you know, it issues. I mean, that clearly, you know, is not the case. Um, um, but uh, it's absolutely that uh, it and it alone, you know, um, and preferably as a monarch, you know, creates the laws. So th let's make this the final question. That brings you on then to the issue of conscription, right? So even Hobbes, who is sort of as authoritarian a political philosopher as you're going to get, is like, Hobbes is against conscription, right? His his well, view. Well, so so it depends what we mean against. I mean, I would have to reread. I mean, I haven't read that bit of advice in a very long time. I don't think he says that the sovereign is not morally entitled to try conscript you. No, no, the sovereign can, but the reason you join a state in the first yeah. place is to protect your own life. 
And if the states, if the states making, I don't want to go to war. It's dangerous. You could get killed. The whole point of being in a state is to not get killed, right? That's right. Um, So, so then, then you're allowed. You know, you commit no wrong. You know, if you um, if you flee, you know, before the sovereigns, you know, agents turn up, you know, on your doorstep, um, you know, to um, you know to press gang you, you know, into the army. I mean, I think conscription is difficult. Again, it. it's an interesting um, uh, example of the ways in which the state claims to exercise an enormous amount of control, you know, over your body. Um, you know, you have to move your body in the ways that are, you know, required by the imperatives of battles. And insofar as you have a conscript, you don't have a choice. Um, you know, on pain of fairly severe penalty in some cases, you just have, you know, you just have to do it. Um, I mean, I'm I'm torn on conscription, so. But I'm going to have to go soon, actually, I realize. But um, I, I'm sympathetic to the view, and if I, I defend the view uh, in the book in, that you mentioned earlier, I, I don't simply argue that under some circumstances we are morally entitled to sell you know, bits of our body. Um, I also defend the view that under other circumstances we are under a moral obligation to provide you know, body parts, but you know, relevantly to conscription bodily services you know, for the sake of others. Um, so you know, if, if in order to survive, you don't need my money, you need me to do something for you, you know, walking to the telephone to call 999, you know, performing CPR and so on and so forth, I am under a potential duty to do it, um, a duty to provide that particular kind of service. And that opens the door, you know, to an argument in favor of conscription, you know, as a way to discharge duties of assistance, you know, to one another. That's that's a very that's a very you way of making that argument, right? Because you've just gone from something that would be profoundly morally counterintuitive to most yeah. people to something that is actually morally neutral. I think most people actually don't really know what they feel about conscription. But the, the, yeah, I mean, it certainly follows that if the state can claim, you know, certain controls over your body to save the lives of others in terms of blood and tissues and organs yeah. and stuff like that, it certainly, that there would be some door open for conscription, yeah. right? So, so, yeah, so it opens the door. Now, um, you know, duties to provide help, you know, need to be constrained by what I and others call a no undue sacrifice proviso. So, you know, you can argue that, um, you know, whether I am under duty to do something for you, you know, depends on, you know, the costs, you know, that I would incur, you know, in doing so. And so you might then go on to say, well, you know, the costs I would incur by donating blood or by, you know, rescuing a child from a very shallow pond are minimal. I am definitely under duty to incur those costs. The costs of fighting in war, you know, both physical, material and moral, you know, costs are much higher. So, you know, any um, argument in favor of conscription that would appeal to duties of assistance would have to be sensitive, you know, to those costs. So all I want to commit myself to at this point is to say, well, you know, given some of the views I have and which I still hold, you know, about um, the nature of the assistance that we might be under duty to provide, not just money, but personal, you know, services, then there is no reason to rule out conscription in principle, you know, on the grounds that it consists in providing a service, you know, the service of fighting. This, this, we should close in, but this, this might be an idea of like how weird my moral intuitions are in that your arguments about like claiming body parts just make complete sense to me. 
I was like... So, okay, so what do you think about conscription, then? I don't know. Right, okay. So, you know, yeah. so, so, so I view the shallow pond as essentially valid and normative, right? In the, right. the Peter Singer thing of, like, if you'd, if you'd ruin your $50 shoes to go in the pond to rescue a child, should, shouldn't you be under the same obligation to give a $50 donation to a charity? Right. Yeah, I think that's essentially valid. Um, and I think the mechanism isn't that the state comes round and arrests you because, you know, right. you, you rejected the Oxfam canvasser. Yeah. It's the yeah. state says, well, no, we're going to tax you and we're going to set aside a certain portion of your income for this. I can't see that we have any claim at all on our body's organs after we die. That just, right, okay. So you agree with me there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I read your book and I was like, I honestly hadn't thought about it much. But I was like, yeah, after you die... I no, I mean I don't think you you're not there to own your body and I don't think your family can claim to own your body either. And if there's a life to be saved, that just overrides any other concern. Now I think that the the shallow pond doesn't scale up. So I don't mean that it's not generalizable, I mean that should you go into the shallow pond to save the child? Yes. Should you go into the burning building? To save the child. Well, it would be great if you did, but I don't think anyone could yeah. hold you morally accountable for not. And so when it when it comes to like claiming body parts from others, I would be totally fine with some sort of modest government scheme whereby you could get a tax write-off for giving blood or maybe even fined for not or something not, like that. Yeah, 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 something. Yeah, but I mean, the economic incentive works the same way. Right. So it's more palatable, I think, to have a tax write-off for rather right. than... A, a penalty for not, but it's morally, I think it's about the same difference. That's more just a messaging question. But I think then, should you have to give up your kidney for another person who needs it, I think that's much more akin to running into the burning building. So there's a, there's a limit, but I think I'd, I'd go with you down that road much, much yeah, further so, than no, most people would. So, um, the really difficult question, it seems to me, has to do with, well, you know, um, at one point, you know, can we say that the costs are simply too high? Um, what makes it really complicated in the case of war, you know, in general, conscription in particular, uh, is that now we start talking about the psychological costs of, you know, killing, you know, another person. So I find it really fascinating that um, studies about uh, the stress levels encountered in drone pilots so he operates thousands of miles away, you know, from the battlefield and are not in any way um, in any physical danger, you know, show that those stress levels are at least as high, if not higher, than the stress levels registered by people, soldiers who fight, you know, on the ground. Um, and that I find really, really, you know, interesting. So, so, so we need to start in those cases before... You know, I would be willing to say that you know, construction, you know, is also considered justified. But, uh, you know, justified. I would want to, you know, think harder about a whole range of costs. You know, which are not maybe to repeat physical or material, but moral, you know, costs, psychological, you know, costs. You know, which you know the agent would have to, um, you know, would have to incur. I mean, you know, I don't have a principle that would tell us in a somewhat mechanical way, oh yeah, that cost is too high, that cost is not too high. I think this is where you have to look at it on a case-by-case you know, basis and try to explore, scrutinize your intuitions as honestly you know, as possible. I mean, that might just be the answer, though, right? Is that it's there's not this is something as messy and complicated as yes. this. There's just not a clear, bright line. 
And yeah. in, in a way, it would be weird if they were. So I don't know whether it'd be weird if they were. I mean, you know, our moral life might be easier, you know, if right. uh, you know if there were. But 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 uh, so my, my my colleague Tony Cody, um, who's written quite a bit um, about war and other matters, you know, calls this messy morality, and I think he's right. I mean, that's a clear, you know, example, you know, of messy morality. It's a mess, you know, we, and we we just have to, you know, do the best that we can, um, you know, by by using the you know reflective equilibrium method or variant thereof, which we discussed earlier, you know, as um, as rigorously and, and honestly, you know, as we can. That seems like a good pause. Yeah, I think it's a good way to pause, actually. Yeah. So let's leave but, it there. I've really enjoyed that. We've gone much longer than I thought, but it's been really fun. Uh, than so I been, thought. Yeah, no, it's, it's been really... You, you, you were very good, actually, at leading um, leading us, you know, through the broadly agreed, you know, structure you know, of the interview. So that felt really good. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do like and subscribe. The links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So our schedule of which guests are going to be coming up is a little bit out of sync because I made some commitments to guests to get their episodes up early. So, for instance, I just talked with Professor Richard Winfeld, who is a philosopher running for Congress. Um, Philosophers running for office seems to be uh, uh, something of a recurring theme on this show. So I made a commitment to get his episode out before his primary election, which I'm happy to do. Um, So stay tuned to our social media for updates on who's going to be coming on the show. We do have some really cool announcements. We've got some big names in human rights and in the atheist community who are going to be coming on the show. I'll say no more than that, but there's a couple of people coming on who you'll know who they are, and that's really cool. And we've also got... um, more really world-leading academics coming on as well, which is all really exciting. So if you want to get those updates, please do follow us on social media. Apart from that, and I don't mean to be coy about the announcements, I just want to have everything confirmed before I do announce it. Apart from that, thank you so much for listening. That we've received some really positive feedback from these conversations is fantastic. It makes me really happy, genuinely. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this. It's really appreciated. And until next time.